Isaiah 11 and 12. This is the word of God. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, He will sweep His hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of His people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day, You will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord Himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim His name. Make known among the nations what He has done, and proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. 
Our Father, we would ask uh, this morning that you would, by the Spirit who fills and guides and overshadows the root and the shoot from Jesse, may that same Spirit fill us with wisdom and understanding, with the fear of the Lord, with counsel and with might, so that we can know you better. Lord, I pray that you'll give us accuracy as we work through this passage together. This is your word uh, given to us. It is for our good. It is to feed us. It is to uh, nurture and nourish us. So, Father, I pray that you'll give us open and receptive hearts. Pray that you will even now uh, set aside the, the things that distract us. Pray that now you, you will set aside the things that uh, burden us and weigh us down. Uh, it, it is not by might or by strength, but by your Spirit that we are able to accomplish anything of, of, of lasting good. And so we look to you, be our salvation even this morning. Help us to feel it. Help us to feel your presence. Lord, manifest Yourself in our hearts in an irrefutable and inescapable way, we pray. May everyone here be conscious of communion with the living triune God. And may we feel the weight of that privilege, but also the joy of that relationship that you who are the creator and sustainer of all things also are our redeemer and our savior, that you who are transcendent, you who are the king of kings and lord of lords, you also love us, and you have bought us through the price of the blood of your son, who voluntarily and willingly for the joy set before him endured the cross. God, help us to see reality. Help us to see you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this uh, passage here in Isaiah, uh, particularly verses 6 through 9, uh, are uh, clearly uh, things that we're pretty familiar with. I mean, you've heard this text numerous times. Uh, the context is actually important as well. Chapter 10, of course, in chapter 10 is building off of 7 through 9. Isaiah is, is, Isaiah is a, a, a meticulously constructed book. Okay. And so chapter 10 hits God using the Assyrians to chastise his people. God's intention is good. The uh, intention of the Assyrians is not. And so the Assyrians are punished for what they do as well. At the end of chapter 10, you read this. See the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. So the image here is you just end with this great superpower, this, this, this nation of Assyria has been chopped down. It, it's like a clear-cut forest. They are no more. 
But David's house is cut down too. David's house is like a tree that's been fallen or felled. Now there's only a stump left. And in the same way that it looks hopeless for the Assyrians, it looks hopeless for Judah. Now I just need to say something which, which I find exciting, which you might not. Next week, you want to come back because I'm going to cover chapters 13 through 19 next week. I know. And, and I am not in any way going to lower my ratio of time per verses. So, we're, so pack a lunch. Like it's going to be a phenomenal event. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to find embedded in that text is that even though the enemy of Israel, Assyria, has, is totally cut down to the judgment of God, he's not done with them either. And that's, in a, that's, that's actually one of the most shocking things in the text uh, that we'll see next week. All of this judgment, even against the pagan, bloodthirsty nation, ruined like a clear-cut forest. As time goes on, you find out God, God actually has a purpose for them too. It's a shocking way. In an absolutely, not only surprising, but shocking way. Here you have Assyria cut down. And Jesse, that is David's house, like a stump, everything's ruined. But God is going to bring out of this stump new growth. This is one of the most hopeful passages that there is in the canon. It looks like God, again, should finally just be done with His covenant people. They keep breaking the covenant in terms of their responsibility. And God, because of His promises, because of His unconditional love and grace, continues to work with them. But you think eventually God's going to say, you know what? After all of these centuries, enough is enough. You're done. But He never does. Yes, He reduces them. Yes, He brings them down. Yes, there's punishment and chastisement. There's discipline. All of these things are true. But God never goes back on His covenant promises. Here you have David reduced to a cut-down tree. But a shoot, a little twig, a little branch, emerges from the stump. From his, root, uh, from his roots, a branch comes that bears fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So obviously, Jesse isn't a stump. Obviously, the branch, you know, this isn't, this isn't literal. It's all metaphorical. So the branch, the shoot, the one who will be ultimately fruitful is a person. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That is, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on this branch from David's line. The Spirit is the one who gives wisdom and understanding. Here, it's multifaceted. Who is this Spirit? What's a way of describing the Spirit of God? Well, He's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He helps you know what's true in, in aligning with God. The Spirit of counsel and of might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And He delights in the fear of the Lord. Here you're being told that when the Messiah comes, He is going to be filled with, David's greater son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and he will fear God. The, the, the enormous problem so far in Isaiah is that the people are afraid of everyone except God. They're, they're, they're afraid of you know, the northern tribes. They're, they're afraid of Aram. You know, they're afraid of Assyria. They're afraid of everyone except the Lord. They don't fear Him. And so the reversal, which brings fruitfulness, is the Spirit of God fills this child, this Messiah, who will be fruitful precisely because he delights in the fear of the Lord. He delights to honor God. He doesn't judge by what he sees. In other words, he's not limited like we are, not just what he sees, not just what he hears. His judgment is actually going to be infallible. You know, he can't be misled. So, either optically or auditorily. He's going to make accurate judgments, and His justice is going to be demonstrated, His righteousness is going to be demonstrated precisely in the category of representing justice and achieving and accomplishing justice for those who are oppressed and marginalized, for the poor of all the earth. And so, here again we see the great concern that God has for global justice and the hatred God has for sort of the systemic discrimination which, ex- which continually exploits certain categories and classes of people. So that God knows, and we should know too, if we pay any attention to what's going on, not just through history, but today in our world, it is impossible. It is, it is literally, and I use that word advisedly, it is literally impossible for some people to get justice in the world because the system is intentionally stacked against them. And so, it's not only just the adjudication of particular cases, it's whole massive societal, and today, it's whole massive global structures that actually make justice impossible for certain types of people. In some countries, that's based on race. In some countries, that's based on religion. In many countries, even where you have ostensible fairness and blindness in the judicial system, it's based on socioeconomics. One of the things that is so clear, I mean, one, of the, one of the great lessons, of which there were many, from the O.J. Simpson trial, I mean, one of the lessons was, don't try to make someone wear a glove if you're not sure that it's going to fit perfectly on their hand. That was the one, you know, massive hard lesson that that prosecuting attorney learned. Uh, But the other lesson is, oh, everyone's equal under the sight of the law. Sure, sure you are. But not everyone can pay out for a superstar team of attorneys. If O.J. Simpson wasn't a rich, rich, rich man, and had regular public, of, public appointed defense counsel, it would have been a totally different trial. That's one of the things you learn. Oh, even in a country like ours, where there isn't one set of laws for the rich and the poor, those who are ultra-rich can sure afford a better shot at winning their case than those who don't have that kind of money. No, this one takes the side of those who are innocent no matter what. And he punishes those who are oppressing them no matter what. 
you know, it, it's a bit of a cliche today, which has been used, unfortunately, in all kinds of sort of social fomenting circumstances. But here's someone who speaks truth to power. Here's someone who actually does what's right. Now, on the other hand, because we have to be careful today, too, is that on the other hand, uh, one, of the, one of the balancing things in God's law is that in, in the Old Testament law, God makes sure, listen, you don't take the side of the rich. That's very common, especially if you're accepting bribes. But God balances by also saying, hey, but don't show favoritism to the poor person in the lawsuit either. Because sometimes what we do is, is, is we just go, well, you know, let's, let's basically assume that somehow the poor are entitled to what the rich have. Let's always side with them. God says, no, 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 no. No, do what's right. Doesn't matter if they're poor or rich. Do what's right. This one does that. He's impartial. He actually judges properly. And when this happens, you have an utter restoration of harmony and peace and balance. That's why you then have this imagery in verses 6 through 9. You can't just clip the, this passage out of this context. This imagery is supposed to show you what it looks like when the Messiah of God, filled by the Spirit, brings justice to the earth. What does it look like when things are right, in other words? How deep can this go? Because the reality is what you have is you have a a global situation where it's impossible for the Assyrians and the Israelites to be reconciled together. That's never going to happen. It's impossible for Judah in the south to to be uh, reconciled with the north. The kingdom's divided. That's never going to happen. It's impossible unless there's a miracle. It's impossible with, with sort of the global politicking. But what if God intervenes? What if the Messiah comes to rule and reign? In other words, how deep can the healing go? And the picture is this. The healing runs so deep that the wolf lives with the lamb. The Assyrian lives with the Israelite. There's a radical reorientation in what's possible in relationship. You think about the ethnic horror and genocide in Rwanda in the early 90s, the entailments of which are still with us today. And you think, what would be, how could you ever have those groups aligned in harmony? And you never will, apart from the Spirit of God. But that reconciliation is actually more of a miracle than a wolf living with a lamb. In fact, the language here is used is very particular. The wolf will live with the lamb. It's, it's language drawn from hospitality. It's, it's literally the wolf will journey with or sojourn with the lamb. The idea is that the wolf is like a, an immigrant 
that has come into the country of the lamb, and the lamb takes the wolf into its home to take care of. That's the language. The wolf doesn't just live running around not attacking the lamb. It's that the lamb is the wolf's host. They live together. The lamb takes care of them. That's an amazing picture. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. Now that's an interesting mom's connect group. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. There's something else here in this text, though, that I don't know if much ought to be made about it or not. I kind of think we should, but I don't know. Because I kind of want it to be saying this. Whenever you kind of want something to be saying something, you have to be really careful about that because you, you, you might just make it say something it's not really saying. But notice the pairings. It's not, and I, I had never, it never, this had never occurred to me until just not too long ago, actually, no matter, I mean, no matter how many times I've read this or thought about it. The pairings to me today are fascinating because it's, the wolf and the lamb, fine, fine, fine. Leopard and goat, lion and cow, or lion and calf, cow and bear. It's always a pairing of a domestic animal and a wild animal. It's not the wolf and the deer. It's not the, you know, the bear and the Whatever, whatever bears eat in the Middle East, I have no idea. We'll, we'll make it Canadian. It's not the, the bear and the caribou, okay? So is something being said here in terms of utter holistic harmony that brings spheres together, that is domestic wild? Is God saying that really what he's making is an Eden where those categories break down. And if that's the case, then what you have here is almost a view which is entirely compatible, if not bordering on identical, with indigenous people's conceptions of wilderness. See, one of the fascinating things about the ecological movement is that we tend to think of human society and wilderness. But in indigenous thought, there is no wilderness. There's land. It's your home. It's where you live. In fact, the reality is, for a great many of us, the way we conceptualize wilderness and nature is actually entirely contingent on Western colonial racism. So you read people, Americans, Canadians, even not too long ago, 
who would write letters about um, being in the wilderness. And you know it's wilderness because, because the only thing you find there are animals and Indians. But it wasn't wilderness to the indigenous people who were living there. It was their home. This bifurcation of society wilderness is literally a categorization of the Western mind, imposed as if it's a real grid. Here, it looks like one thing you're being told is there's a reconciliation, there's a holism. The way you parse up and divide up safe, insecure, domestic, wild, all of that goes away. Everything becomes home. Everything is brought together. This is Eden. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God fills creation with His glory. You've already seen this uh, cried out in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The problem is we don't have eyes to see it. Here, there's a reorientation where, you're just, where your eyes are open to see what's before you. Sometimes that's actually the, the, the very hardest thing, is just, just to see what God has put right in front of you. Here, no, no, there's no more harm, there's no destruction. Everything is balanced in harmony and wholeness as it ought to be. The earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will sound so insipid, but I mean it. I want this to be true so badly. I want to experience this so badly. This this reconstructed world order where there's justice for all, where there's massive, deep-seated healing and reconciliation, where, where there's this, this unnecessary bifurcation of categories, where everything just fits and suits as it ought to be. I long to see this and to experience it. In that day, the root of Jesse, and here's sort of your a mixing of metaphors, at least in terms of... It's not a mixing of metaphors, but it's, it's an extension of an interesting metaphor in an odd way. In that day, the root of Jesse isn't underground. The root of Jesse, far from being buried, stands up, exalted over the earth as a banner, as a rallying point for the peoples. Now, this is interesting, too, because he's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You get this language, actually, you know, in Revelation 5 as well, the root of David. Somehow, this Messiah comes from David, but David is supported by him. He's both the shoot from David and the root of David simultaneously. You know, oh my goodness, how is that even, how is that possible? You know, what, what, what do we know, about, what, what do we have in terms of horticulture where the root is the shoot from the plant as well? Where do you get anything like that at all? 
You'd say, well, it's almost like, and it is metaphorical, but it's almost like there's, there's different natures at work here. You know, exactly. This, 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 this Messiah, this root, has two natures. According to his human ancestry, he's a descendant of David. Oh, but that's not all he is. He's fully God and fully man. As God, he supports the entire Davidic household. As God, he pre-exists David. He pre-exists Jesse. He pre-exists the creation of light. He's fully God and fully man. His resting place will be glorious, or literally glory is his resting place. And then in that day, as he stands towering above everything as the rallying cry, all of his people are drawn to him from all of the nations. And the image is is amazing here. Verse 12, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He assembles the scattered people, then there's reconciliation with Judah and Ephraim. They come pouring towards him. Verse 15, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. Now, first of all, that is then biblical evidence that you ought to wear sandals. So that's the first thing, um, just so you know. And in the winter, this is, just, this is just for free. This isn't really part of the text, but it ought to. This is a textual variant that says something like this. Um, they, anyone, he will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in socks and sandals actually, is, is one of the, the variants that you get there, particularly in the winter. We should all just acknowledge this. Socks and sandals is probably the most comfortable thing in the world uh, in the winter. And for those who think that it's not fashionable, you're wrong. <laughs> Crossover in sandals. Now, if you're crossing a stream in sandals the leather type of ones that they would have had. That's going to be a really, 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 really shallow stream. Or else your sandals will be ruined. God breaks up the Euphrates, a great river of Assyria. He breaks it up into seven streams or rivulets. He perfectly divides it. So that it's like they're crossing on dry ground. You can just go, you can go, go, walking through with your sandals. Your feet don't even get wet. You're supposed to stop. You're supposed to say, where, where have we seen something like that before? This is second Exodus. Isaiah at different times will use second Exodus imagery in association with the redemption that comes through Messiah. To the point where he will say, or the prophets will say, look, you won't even remember the first Exodus in Egypt. Because the redemption I'm bringing in the future is going to be so much greater. And that's fulfilled with Christ, who's the fulfillment of all that that pointed forward to. There will be a highway for the remnant of His people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So in case you didn't get the referent, He gives it to you. Spoon-feeding. This is just like when they came up out of Egypt. It's second Exodus And it's accomplished in that day. In what day? In the day of the Messiah. That is the fulfillment of all of this is the redemption in Jesus Christ. Building up biblical categories of prophetic enacted fulfillment redemption. 
So what's the response? Well, after you've run out and got yourself a pet lion and bear for the novelty of it, then you turn your attention back to God. In that day, that is, once you've experienced redemption, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. And that's why we sing songs when we gather corporately. It's not so we can show off the incredible talents of our musicians. If that was the reason, if we were going to show off the incredible talents of our musicians, I'd be the soloist every week. So it's clearly not for that reason. It's because you have to praise God in response. If, he ha- if you've experienced redemption, in that day, I will praise you, Lord. That's the response to worship, to adore Him, to magnify His name for all that He is and all that He's done. It's impossible not to. When He brings such deep-seated reconciliation that, that the lion and the calf can lie down together and be friends, and, and the lamb can, can see the wolf out in the, the town square and say, do you have a place to stay tonight? Well, you don't come live with me. If God can bring that type of deep, structured reconciliation, and of course, what's the greatest relationship that needs reconciliation? It's you and God. And if God has provided a way to heal that, to bring you together with Him, what are you going to do if you actually get, like, actually get any of that, besides the theory of it? But if you actually enter into it in any sense of experience that this is true in your life, how is it that you can resist praising? So that's actually more the biblical question. The biblical writers, quite frequently, they're not concerned with how do you start praising. They're more concerned with, like, how do you do anything else? If you actually just think about who God is and what He's done, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, and justifiably so, your anger has turned away. Your wrath has been satisfied. And you, you, have comforted me. Me. Who is the you? It's the same God of Isaiah 6. See, we tend to think about God in, it's also multifaceted, but we tend to think about God almost in, in hermetically sealed parcels. So, he, so this is like God the Comforter. This is God the Father. This is God the King. God is all of those things and more. The God who stoops down to comfort you is still simultaneously the God who is holy, holy, holy. The train of His robe fills the temple, and if you see Him, you cry out, Woe to me, I am ruined. Until He provides atonement and takes away your guilt and your sin. He is never less than holy, holy, holy. He is never less than transcendent, 
even when he stoops to us and takes us in his arms to comfort us, he is still the God whose the train of his robe fills the temple. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. It's easy to not be afraid when you're living in the fulfillment of Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, because there's nothing to be afraid of. But in that case, you're not really trusting. You don't need to trust. Everything's fine. No, I will trust and not be afraid. That means there's still a lot of things to be afraid of. There still are the Assyrians. I'm not sure if you've watched any BBC Planet Earth documentaries lately. In the wild, apparently, the lions and bears and wolves haven't quite reached this place with all the other animals. There still is a world of danger. But in this world of danger and loss and sorrow where things, frankly, just aren't what we want them to be. I trust. Or more, more honestly, I struggle to trust. I want to trust. I fight to retain faith. And I'm not afraid. More honestly, I am afraid, but I try not to let it master me. I am scared but I try to be brave. I try to have courage because of who God is. And I pray, Lord, don't treat me according to my faith, but I pray probably, how sad is this perhaps, that the prayer in the Gospels that probably resonates most with me is, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength. God knows I don't have enough. And my defense. He has become my salvation. Because of that. The end, not the beginning, is joy. With joy, uh, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. He saved you. Danger, yes. All these, yes, 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 yes. But in light of the salvation and exodus and redemption and ultimate global reconciliation, in light of the future that God has in store for us, you drink deeply from the wells of joy. And, and, And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes in our in our in our spiritual walk. We know that there's a well of joy, but we're not sure we can find it anymore. We, 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 we don't know where it is anymore. You know, we've been in the desert so long, we're, we're, we think we're seeing mirages. We don't know where to go. We're parched and barren and, and wanting to give up, but we know if we can just get there, there is joy. There is. So part of our spiritual battle sometimes, part of our spiritual journey sometimes is, is fighting forward to get to that well of joy. 
Because you've tasted from it, haven't you? You you have, maybe not recently, but you know what that tastes like. You want it again. Because you know nothing else is ultimately going to satisfy you except God your Savior. The deep wells of salvation are filled with the water of joy. In that day, repetition, in that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim His name, make known among the nations what He has done. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. So you have that accent in verse 4. Make known among the nations. And then in verse 5, let this be known to all the world. In other words, look, when, when you've experienced the salvation of God, if it's something that you actually have, you, you cannot, you cannot be content to have this as a privatized religion. No, the whole world has to know. Everyone has to know. How is it possible that there is a redemption uh, this rich and people don't know about it? Now, there are more people alive today than have ever been alive on the planet at, in, in any of the world's history. And there are more Christians alive today than there have ever been at any time in the world's history. But there are still billions of people who live in places where there is either literally no witness for the gospel at all, or the, the number of believers is so small, most people will still live their lives and never hear an articulation of the gospel. I suspect that to the prophet Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, if he was told, by the way, in 2,700 years from now, there will still be all kinds of people who have never even heard the gospel in their own language. I think he would say, wait a minute, somehow you messed what God's done. Because if you get what God has done, if you respond with joy, if you've, if you've drank deeply from that well of salvation, you're going to go to the whole world. You will find a way. And somehow we haven't found that way yet. How is that, I wonder? And today, I'm convinced it's this. Today, with travel and with wealth, if the church, just in the Western world, which is the minority church today, one of the things that showed me how how provincial and parochial I am, was the first time I was in Africa, and I was shocked that, that an enormous number of missionaries that I kept running into were from South Korea. I always thought missionaries were Western. Not the case at all. We have the money. We have the numbers of people. We have infrastructure. We have medicine. We don't have the will. 
That's what it amounts to. Because there's actually no logistical obstacle which is keeping the every person in the world from hearing about the gospel within the next generation. And so if, at the end of the next 20, 25 years, there still are unreached people groups, it's simply because we chose to prioritize other things. That's it. We chose to use our time and money differently to, do, to accomplish other things. That's all there is to it. I mean, there's, there's, just, there's no other way of analyzing it. It's, we've chosen that other things are more important. That's it. But here Isaiah is saying, my goodness, if you've experienced this, doesn't it just set a fire in your heart for other people to experience this too? Like, like if, this is, if God has done this for you, don't you want everyone to know about this? Don't, don't, isn't this the most important thing in all of the universe? This is, he, God is doing this. He's done this. He's done it for you. He whistles for all the nations. Go and tell them. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about the Messiah. And, and, and not only in Isaiah's day, but for us, for goodness sakes. You know, we... we Isaiah is looking forward, metaphorically, one day there'll be a shoot from a stump. We look back, concrete, historically, literally, and say, it's Jesus. It's this person. Here's some of his words. Here's some of the things he did. Here's how he atoned for sin. Here's his death on the cross. Here's the resurrection. Here's where he conquers Satan and death and guilt and shame and sin. Here's how you have eternal life. Here's the fulfillment of all of these things. Isaiah, in a shadowy way, in a metaphorical way, is looking forward to what might be or what will be. We look back at its accomplishment. We don't just say, oh, he's, he's a root, he's a shoot. We say, he's Jesus of Nazareth. We have the gospel. And probably, in some ways, an index of your true understanding of the gospel and the joy that you have in it is how much you care about other people having the opportunity to know Jesus too. Because salvation here is not just so that we can feel good. Salvation here is so that the whole world can be brought to know God. Because nothing less is sufficient for who God is. It's just not sufficient that there are people who don't know Him. Everyone on earth should have the opportunity to love God through the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ. So, Shout aloud. If you're shouting aloud, you're not keeping it to yourself. Shout aloud. Sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. And He is. God Himself, the Holy One of Israel, is among His people. Do you know that? That we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And again, because it's not about attracting personal attention, I'm not going to lead that particular song. But we think sometimes, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to, to be part of that 
that, that choir in heaven in Isaiah 6. What would it be like to see that, to see the burning ones, the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. What would it be like to worship God in his presence? God is as much here as he is there. Not only because he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. He's even in hell. But he manifests himself. He lives, he delights to live with the lowly and contrite. He delights to live intimately with his people. And so he's not just here as a metaphysical, ontological fact. God's everywhere, so by definition, he must be here too. He's here because he intentionally enters relationally into this space. Because this is where his people are. He's actually, when you worship him, you're worshiping the one who in some ways is on the throne of heaven but who in other ways is literally, spiritually, living inside of your heart. You worship the God who is in you. That's how intimate that relationship is. High and exalted. This is the hope of glory, Christ in you. He's inside. And so we're going to praise God. Shout aloud, but in key. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. Great is the Holy One of Israel among in you. Let's worship our God.